been well over a year. I don't think I was here in 2020. And what a year 2020 was. Uh, so much has happened in our country. But we thank the Lord that we can gather together again in his presence and be reminded of these wonderful truths that a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. As Christians living in America, we have reason to be concerned about the state of our country. It's not good, and it seems to be getting worse by the day. With many of the new executive orders our president signs in the Oval Office, don't be thinking this is some sort of Trump speech to suggest if he were elected, all would be good. The reality is our country's been experiencing moral decline for decades. Executive orders seeking to ban what is called discrimination on the basis of, quote, sex-based stereotypes, end quote, because of how people dress are being put into place. In another article, even the Roman Catholic Church is beating up against President Biden and some of his executive orders accusing him of, quote, conflating the goal of racial equality with the imposition of new attitudes and false theories on human sexuality which can produce social harms, end quote. All kinds of blatant immorality being redefined as acceptable as our brother prayed Evil is being called good, and good is being called evil. Even executive orders reestablishing the financial support of organizations worldwide that promote abortion as an acceptable option and right of women everywhere, so we're not content to spill the blood of our own children. We want to promote that worldwide. And as we think of these things, and if you read and meditate too much upon these things, you will certainly be discouraged. There is the temptation to be discouraged about the state of affairs in our country, is there not? And we need to be careful that we don't spend too much of our time and energy meditating upon these things, because they won't lift you up, they're going to bring you down. And we need to take our our minds and our eyes off our cell phones and all of the instant notifications we get on everything that's happening in the news and think more on the truths that we find in Holy Scripture that we would have our hearts stayed upon the Lord and be at perfect peace because we can be. So we need to examine our focus and recognize that the more we're preoccupied with the world and all of the anti-God, anti-Christian things happening, the more we'll be unsettled. And the remedy is to come back to truths that will comfort us and help us as we read in Isaiah 26. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord is an everlasting rock. So this was a study that I suggested Pastor Nichols do in our church um, relative to the state of our country and some of the things that he was talking about in his course on the doctrine of God. And one of the things he was doing in the doctrine of God was going through the names of God and particularly the name Adonai. And as I read and as I listened to his lecture on that, I thought, wow, this would be awesome to present to the church. And at the same time, while I was listening to these things, Pastor Nixon was like, pray for me and and talk to me if you have anything you'd like me to preach on. And so I went to him and I said, Pastor, I said, this was great material from the doctrine of God on the name Adonai, the supreme ruler of heaven and earth. You should do it for our church. And he said, that sounds like a great idea, Adam. Why Why don't you do it? So it could have been him, but it's going to be me. And, uh, you know, I guess you guys drew the short straw. But those uh, lectures are available, and they were very, very encouraging. And so I'm hoping 
to share some of that with you today, some of my studies, particularly from the book of Ezekiel and chapter 1. And I think the name of God, that he is Adonai Jehovah, the supreme ruler of heaven and earth, is a great thing for us to be reminded of. He is our God, brethren. There is still a throne in heaven, and it's occupied. He's sitting upon it. He's reigning and he's ruling, and he is not worried about what's happening in the United States of America. And I hope the big theme and big goal and big idea of this sermon and the sermon I'll come back to do, Lord willing, in two weeks is to encourage you as you think about our God, as we think about the vision that Ezekiel had of God, particularly in chapter 1 of his book, that you will be encouraged and your heart will be at peace. And in light of all of the commotion and all of the potential anxiety and everything that's going on in our country, you're going to respond with, it's going to be all right. We're going to be okay. Because our God is at the helm. And he's still working out his purposes for the good of his people, for the good of his church. And no matter how the nations rage, they will not be able to dethrone this king of kings. So today we're going to go through the meaning of Adonai and we're going to spend most of our time in this sermon Looking at the background of Ezekiel's prophecies, we're going to look at a little bit of, about, we're going to talk a little bit about Ezekiel himself, and then through that we'll make some concluding observations and applications. The study of God's names in the Bible is rich. Each of his names tells us about him, about his character and what he is like, the character of God and the position of God relative to this world and country, is a very comforting and sanctifying thing for us to meditate on Christians. But studying the character of God is also very humbling, and it ought to be terrifying for those who don't know him. This is not a God, as you learn about him, you want to go against. You want this God to be for you, not against you. You've heard of General James Mattis. What he says about American Marines is ultimately true about God. The world can have no better friend in God and no worse enemy. You want God to be for you, not against you. But it is comforting to us whom God is for. If he is for us, as Paul has written... Who can be against us? We have nothing to fear. The definition of Adonai. Adonai is from the root word Adon in the Hebrew, which means master or Lord. The word is used to describe the person in a relationship who is in a position of authority. For example, a parent, a husband, master, employer, or a ruler, president. Adonai is the emphatic form of Adon, and this is from the Doctrine of God, Greg Nichols. This name, quote, depicts Jehovah our God as our supreme master and ruler who provides for us, to whom we owe ultimate allegiance, and to whom we will give an account. You see this name referenced in Ezekiel 2 verse 4. I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children. And you shall t- say to them, thus says Adonai Jehovah, the Lord God. Like you should probably listen. Thus says the supreme ruler of the universe. He who is in ultimate authority is speaking. And these are his words. The rebellion of Israel is not against Nebuchadnezzar. That's not why they were deported. But the supreme ruler of the universe, he is responsible for them being in Babylon. Then again in Ezekiel 3.27, But when I speak to you, I will open your mouth, and you will say to them, Thus says Adonai Jehovah, 
He who hears, let him hear, and he who refuses, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. All in positions of authority on earth are subject to, quote, God's supreme and majestic authority. Ultimately, it is to God we owe obedience, and it is God's rule. All men are to respect and obey Above all, Ezekiel and all the prophets spoke with authority because they spoke the words of him who is Adonai. And whenever we open up the word of God, whenever we hear the word of the Lord of Adonai Jehovah faithfully preached, we need to understand that these aren't just nice sayings, wise sayings. These are authoritative. Like this word comes from the God who made us and who is our supreme ruler, the one we owe ultimate obedience, the one before whom all of us will stand and give an account one day. And we need to listen to the word of God with that thought in mind and with that heart, whether we're reading it devotionally or coming to hear it preached in the church. This is the word of the Lord. It's the word of God. We're to continue to preach the word. It's not to be an open discussion when we come to consider the Bible. It's to be preached and proclaimed because it's authoritative. It's not something that needs collaboration or agreement on. It's not something that's debatable. These are the words of the supreme being of the God with whom all authority in heaven and earth exists. So practically speaking, President Biden may be the most powerful leader among men and in the world, but he too is under the authority of our God and will one day give an account. And we should pray for him. We should pray for him because of the responsibility he has that the Lord, even as he humbled Nebuchadnezzar, would humble this man. It would humble all of our leaders to rule with this in mind. One day they'll give an account. So much for the meaning of the name Adonai. Secondly, the frequency of the name Adonai in the Old Testament. You'll find the name referenced and used 434 times. But what's interesting is there's an obvious and disproportionate use of the name in three Old Testament books. One of them is Ezekiel that we're going to look at. Another is Lamentations. And another is Amos. In these books especially, the Holy Spirit, God himself, wants his name, this name, to be used again and again. And it's for good reason. In Amos, Pastor Nichols, as he studied The use of the name there, it's kind of an interesting book, but what was happening there economically and socially in Israel is the rich in Israel were abusing the poor. And they were using their positions of power and authority to use the poor for their own well-being. They were misusing authority. And Amos comes on the scene and he's preaching at them. And he's using this name for God that's, again, a reference to the fact that he is the supreme ruler to humble the leaders in Israel. That they would repent of ruling and leading the poor unlovingly and using them and manipulating them for their own well-being and for their own profit. They needed to be reminded that though they have authority, They will give an account one day to the supreme ruler of the universe. Lamentations and Ezekiel is a little bit easier because you know that they ministered and preached and prophesied in a very difficult time in Israel's history. Israel had been preached to again and again for years and decades. God was sending prophets to them to repent, to humble themselves, to turn from their sin and to turn back to God. And Israel would not listen. And so God punishes them by the Assyrian deportation 
And in the time of Ezekiel, the Babylonian deportation, of which there were three. And he's beginning to strip them of their nation. And ultimately will strip them of the temple. And of all of the glorious buildings in Jerusalem. In judgment for their sin. Most of the people in the nation of Israel were not God-fearers in those days. The people in the world weren't God-fearers. The only light in the world, in that time, in the history of the world, was Israel. And when you looked within Israel, the people of God, and tried to find true and genuine faith in God and belief in God and obedience to God, it was really hard to find. And in that time in the history of the world, it seemed as if the light of the gospel, the light of God, was being snuffed out. The nation was going to be stripped. The people were going to be deported because even they, God's people, by and large, had rejected God, had gone after false idols, and were being judged. So, it's no surprise that in Lamentations and Ezekiel, this name for God is coming through again and again. And we'll see why as we work through it. Now, particularly in Ezekiel, we discover the name Adonai is used 221 times throughout the book. It's used more in Ezekiel than all the other places in the Old Testament combined. What is the background of Ezekiel? Before we do that, let's turn to the book and read chapter 1, a little bit of chapter 1, to see the vision that he gets in the beginning, because this will be the focus eventually. And then we'll open up the background of Ezekiel and look into him a little bit and then draw out some applications. Chapter 1. I'm going to read most of this chapter for you. Now it came about in the 13th year on the fifth day of the fourth month while I was by the river Chabar among the exiles. The heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzi in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chabar, and there the hand of the Lord came upon him. As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually, and a bright light around it, and in its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Within it there were figures resembling four living beings, and this was their appearance. They had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight and their feet were like a calf's hoof and they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides were human hands. As for the faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right and the face of a bull on the left. And all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit was to go, they would go without turning as they went. In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright and lightning was flashing from the fire and the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. Now we are not even to the vision of God himself. These are just the angels of God. They're so glorious. They're so amazing. As we'll see next time, Ezekiel's completely overwhelmed. Incredible beings in the presence of God. Angels in glory and in power attending God. Bringing God to the place where God wants to be. There's fire. There's flashing. They're running to and fro instantly. You get the picture that where these angels, where God wants to go, He gets there immediately. 
There's no delay. Like lightning, God is on the scene in this glorious chariot chariot that's powered by amazing angelic beings with dignified faces of lions and eagles, the strength of bulls like these are God's guards, the cherubim. God shows up to Ezekiel while in Babylon in great glory, in great power, with great impression, reminding him and the Israelites that he's still alive, that he's still in glory, that he still has all power in heaven and on earth. Verse 15, Now as I looked at the living beings, behold, there was one wheel on the earth beside the living beings. For each of the four of them, the appearance of the wheels and their workmanship was like sparkling barrel. And all four of them had the same form, their appearance and workmanship being as if one wheel were within another. Whenever they moved, they moved in any of their four directions without turning as they moved. As for their rims, they were lofty and awesome, and the rims of all four of them were full of eyes round about. Whenever the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them. And whenever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. Wherever the Spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction. And the wheels rose close behind them. For the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Whenever those went, these went. And whenever those stood still, these stood still. And whenever those rose from the earth, the wheels rose close behind them. For the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Now over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. So what are these wheels? Well, you're going to have to come back in two weeks and we'll discuss Ezekiel's wheels. God's wheels, perhaps the wheels that were on God's magnificent angelic chariot. Awesome, impressive wheels. Like the trucks you see in our day. It's a very dim picture. But trucks that have big wheels and wheels that are studded out around you know, the wheel well and everything, they, they capture your attention, at least down in Greene County. We've got a lot of these things. Like these trucks, they're a picture of power, right? That's the, the impression. Like this truck is, is powerful. It can haul a lot. It'll run you over. It's big. It's tough. It's everything the ads tell us, right? And they make it look that way. And it's almost as if this is what Ezekiel is seeing. Not a Dodge Ram, don't get me wrong. This isn't a vision of 2021. I'm not one of those guys, okay? But a chariot, something that would have been familiar with with the ancients, that pictured power. You can read of chariots all throughout the Old Testament. Chariots of iron that this kingdom had. And they were feared, right? This was a a war vehicle that, that revealed power, that was unstoppable, that went in the exact direction the Spirit directed it, the exact direction that the Spirit, the same Spirit that filled the angels and directed them, guided the wheels. And it got there instantly, in any direction. Didn't have to turn. Wasn't like a tank that, you know, slowly turns and then, you know, finds the... The enemy troops it's going after. This thing instantly went in any direction God wanted it to go. To give us the impression and the thought, once again, this God is for us. Who can be against us? This is a war machine, my dear brethren, like I've never seen, like you've never seen. And what's the big idea? It's going to be all right. This, This is our God. These are his angels. This, this is is his chariot. Awesome. And then you get to verse 22. Everything he's talked about up until this point is amazing and captivating. But then he begins to talk about this separation, this expanse, this, this platform that's above the chariot, what might be a chariot, 
And above the angels, there's this expanse, there's this separation. And what he's about to give us is a vision of God. Everything he has talked about is amazing, it's awe-inspiring, but now he's going to fix our attention upon something that is uniquely inspiring, uniquely amazing, and uniquely supreme. And it's the holiness of God, the separation of God, even from these glorious angels. We're going to see the angels, though they're glorious, they cannot behold the glorious sight of Adonai Jehovah. Talks about this expanse. And he wants us to understand the holiness of God here. The separate nature of God. That though these angels are amazing, they're nothing compared to God. God is completely unique and completely supreme and completely majestic. Verse 23, under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight one toward the other. Each one also had two wings covering its body. And the one side, on the one side and on the other, I also heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stood, stood still, they dropped their wings. He's overwhelmed by the sights. He's overwhelmed by the power of the sound of God. And there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads, Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now, above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards something like glowing metal and looked like fire all around Around, around within it and from the appearance of his loins and downward I saw something like fire and there was a radiance around him as the appearance of the rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance technicolor is overwhelming Ezekiel's eyes and senses neurologically such to the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord and when I saw it I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. And this is the vision of Adonai that we're going to continue to open up. I've sort of jumped the gun a little bit on what we'll try to do next time. But the vision of God, doesn't it carry with it a sense of excellency? And like nothing gets beyond this. This is supreme of supreme. This is king of kings. This is above anything we've ever witnessed or seen on earth. This is authority that is high and lifted up. Divinity that is glorious and majestic. And just the vision that Ezekiel gets and that he then shares with God's people would have breathed encouragement. Oh, Ezekiel, tell us more of our God upon his throne. Of our God and all of his glory. They probably peppered him with questions after this. Didn't let him leave the church there for three, four hours. Tell us more, tell us more. What comfort it brought to our souls to hear that our God and all of his glory exists still, that he's not left us, that he has. He has come to meet us where we are in exile here by this river Chabar. So far from the temple, but not far from God. And more importantly, he's not far from us. So the background again of the book, we've sort of begun to open this up. It contains the prophecies and messages from God through Ezekiel to his people during a time when Israel was conquered and taken away by the foreign nation of Babylon. We read in the first verse that Ezekiel's vision was received in the fifth year of Jehoiakim's exile. We know that Jehoiakim, when you take all of the historical accounts in the Bible, was taken to Babylon in the second Babylonian deportation around 597 B.C. 
And about 11 years later, the final destruction of Jerusalem by a grueling two-year siege happened. At that time, the temple gold, bronze, and articles in the temple were all taken to Babylon, anything of value. All the important buildings in Jerusalem, civic and whatnot, burned down. The wall in Jerusalem decimated. This would have happened around 586 B.C. Most of the prophecies in the beginning of Ezekiel were after he was brought to Babylon in 597. You know who else went with him? Daniel and his three friends. The important youth that were then groomed under Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. They were deported at the second Babylonian deportation in 597. They would have been with Ezekiel in Babylon. Most of his prophecies happen in this time frame, between 597 and 586. One of the most humbling times in Israel's history. The nation has lost its autonomy. The people are living at the mercy of foreign rulers who worship false gods in foreign lands. Because of their sin and refusal to hear the warnings of the preaching of the word of God week in, week out, year in and year out, decade in and decade out, God patiently warned his people through the preaching of the word. They refused to listen. They were judged for their sin. No more nation. No more freedom. No more autonomy. Go serve the gods that you've chosen above me. There's a lesson in that for all of us who hear the preaching of God's word regularly, isn't there? Do not refuse the, the commands of the Lord. Whether you hear them through your parents in devotions, through your own Bible reading, through the faithful preaching of the church you attend, whether here or somewhere else, God patiently warns sinners to repent and believe in Christ Don't wait until it's too late. There's a lesson here that the day of grace for Israel as a nation was over. And so the day of grace for each of us as individuals will one day be over. Today is a day of grace and a day of salvation. A day if you repent, believe and look to Christ and say, Jesus, save me. Guess what? He'll save you. He'll save you. What is amazing as you you read Ezekiel's prophecies and preaching is that even after the second deportation, after the Assyrians took the northern kingdom away, Israel still continues in rebellion against God. They still are stiff-necked and unrepentant. And you can read of it all through the beginning chapters of Ezekiel. Now, if you turn over or you can listen as I read 2 Chronicles 36, the testimony of the Word of God is, is where all of what I'm saying to you is coming from. And you should hear it directly from the word in places like 2 Chronicles 36, verse 11 and following. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear allegiance by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations. And they defiled the house of the Lord which he had sanctified in Jerusalem The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose 
against his people until there was no remedy. That is a dreadful day. When there is no remedy, it brings tears to my eyes. You know, I remember the first time as a, as, as a new Christian, 30 years ago this year, hard to believe, reading passages like Proverbs 1, where wisdom is pleading in the streets for sinners to repent and believe, and they won't repent, they won't believe, and there comes a day when the day of grace is over, and they want to repent and believe, and God doesn't listen to them. There's no remedy anymore. Isn't that terrifying? You don't want to find yourself in that season that's coming where there will be no more remedy. Until there was no remedy and the wrath of the Lord rose up against his people. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. Many of Ezekiel's prophecies received and delivered to the people of Israel and Babylon during the second half of Zedekiah's reign and before the final destruction that's spoken of here. All right, the identity of Ezekiel. He's described here in chapter 1 as the priest, son of Buzi. He receives his first word and vision from the Lord when he was about 30 years old. Now, it's interesting that age because according to Numbers 4, verses 3, 23, and 30, and Numbers 9, 24 through 26, the men of Levi would begin their priestly service in the tabernacle and later in the temple at the age of 30, and they would retire from active temple service duty at 50 years old. So if he was still in Israel. At this point in his life. He would have in the same year he received this vision. Started his temple service. It seems Ezekiel. The more you read in the chapter. Was a God fearing believer. Who at least grew up in a God fearing home. We read in Ezekiel 4.14 his own confession. Ah, Lord God, behold, I have never been defiled, for from my youth until now I've never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has any unclean meat ever entered my mouth. So what's the deal, Mr. Davies? What's the deal, Adam? You're telling us they're judged because of their sin, but then you're saying there were God-fearers. Yes, there were. There was still a remnant. Like Jeremiah, like Daniel, his friends, and others who were God-fearers, who were truly of Israel, who truly were the people of God. But by and large, they were not representative of the whole nation. By and large, the whole nation was represented in their kings who were evil and wicked. And so the people were evil and wicked. The prophets even were evil and wicked. Preaching peace, peace to the people when there was no peace. Not warning the people, but saying you can have your best life now and all is good and all is well. Don't worry about sin. Don't worry about the wrath to come. Those are all figments of your imagination. But God had a remnant. All right, concluding observation. As we've looked at some of the background, the timing, history, Ezekiel himself. First of all, Ezekiel is a reminder that though by and large the nation of Israel rebelled against God, he still had a remnant of those who believed, as we've said. He had his Jeremiah's, his Daniel's, his Shadrach's and Meshach's who would continue to seek to serve the Lord, no matter if they were in Israel or Babylon. They would stand alone in Babylon if need be. They would not go with their friends or acquaintances who compromised and went along with Babylonian diet and Babylonian custom. They would stand for God and seek to be faithful to God no matter what others did. A remnant of God-fearers still living on the earth in Ezekiel's day, though their number was true. It was few, rather. And so it's true today, dear people. 
You know, we get caught up on the darkness of the culture and of the politics, and it seems bleak. And we even look out to the churches. God has faithful churches in addition to this church. And outside of our denominational convictions, He has a true church in other churches. This is not what I'm saying, but by and large... There are many churches that have compromised the truth. Many churches that are not preaching the word of the Lord. Many churches that are watering down the gospel. And sometimes we can focus on that and be discouraged. But what a blessing to be reminded, even in one of the darkest times, gospel history, God had his people. And he will always have his people in every generation. Though gospel witness seems to grow dim, it will never go out until the Lord returns in the clouds of glory. He will always have a people, and He'll always be with His people. He'll never leave them, nor forsake them. That's an encouragement. Secondly, maybe Ezekiel, his father, and other Levitical families were trying to reform the sinful practices of the temple when God took them away. We don't know. What seems to be clear is that God-fearing Jews in Ezekiel and Jeremiah's day mourned over the spiritual condition of Israel, prayed for their countrymen, that they would repent, that they would believe, not unlike us. The Babylonian captivity and the judgment of God was not a surprise to all of them, given the hard-hearted condition of their countrymen. Like Jesus mourned over that generation he preached to. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often I would have gathered you. As a mother hand her chicks. But you were unwilling. Broke the heart of our Lord. To see sinners continue in rebellion and to reject it. So it breaks our heart. So no doubt there was a remnant in that day. Whose hearts were broken for their people. No chance to reform the temple practices. And in a few short years, God would remove the temple itself even from Israel. The glory departed, and it was discouraging. But what would they stop doing? How would they change their life in light of these outward things they experienced? The destruction of their nation of the temple. They would not change their life. They would still seek to live in obedience to their God and Savior. Just like Job, though he slay me, I will trust in him. Though he take away the temple, I don't worship the temple. I worship the God of the temple. And he is a God just like Solomon said. Heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house made with hands. A true believer in the Old Testament would know that. This is the God who made all things. As Pastor Sarver is opening up Genesis and creation. Who by the word of his power speaks the world into existence. The same spirit of God that hovered over the world. In the process of creating it. Still was in the world. And he would still be with us. And guess what? He's still upon his throne. He's still ruling. And we're still, whether we're in Israel or by the river Chabar, we're still accountable to live for him. And so they kept living for him. They kept praying to him. They kept serving him. They kept trying to obey him the best they possibly could, no matter where they were. Even the preachers. It's over. Judgment has come. Our job is over. Oh, no. They were still to preach the word of God. And bless God, he still gave them a word to preach. Even while God's people had been dispersed to the nations, God was still preaching and speaking to them through the prophets. Bless God for that. And so it is our responsibility, brethren, not not to stop doing what we're doing. I get get excited about this because I'm yelling at myself, okay? I'm 49 years old. I've been saved 30 years. I've seen too few sinners 
repent and believe. And after decade after decade of not seeing conversions, like we want to see, you get discouraged. And the tendency is to give up. But we can't. We've got to keep preaching. We've got to keep witnessing. We've got to keep believing that our job is to preach and to witness and to proclaim and let God do with it what he wills. He's sovereign over the results. But let us be faithful to keep engaging, to not give up, to keep believing in the power of God and engaging lost people. Though maybe it's a day of small things. That's what Ezekiel was charged to do. That's what the weeping prophet Jeremiah did and was called to do. But it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. You remember Elijah. He's like, Lord, take me home. Too discouraging. This is the same Elijah who slayed the prophets of Baal. Who saw God come down in opposition to the false gods and make himself known. On fire for God. The next week he's down on the dumps discouraged. And God had to say to him. Elijah I have my 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Be encouraged. I have my people though you may not see them with your eyes. God has his people and we need to be encouraged by that. And keep serving the Lord and keep proclaiming the word of God. You know temptation is well look at our church man these pews. You guys are adding more pews than people to this church right out to the door now. (laughs) Don't you want to see it filled? Is it something we're doing wrong? Think that. You're tempted to think that. Oh, the churches are big. More people there. It's not about that. It's about what does God want us to do? What kind of church does God want us to be? Because remember this, it's not your church. It's not my church. It's not their church. God's church. He's the supreme ruler of the universe. Woe be unto us if we, his people, stop obeying his commands. We're his people, right? Certainly. We should live up to the name that we so often address our Savior with. Who is he? Our Lord and Savior. You tempted to leave the church. Maybe you should. I don't know. It's not up to you, though, individually. And it's not up to others in the church. It's up to God. Ask yourself this question before you go from one church to another. I've had to ask myself this question down in Catskill. What do you mean? Adam, you were the pastor there. You wanted to leave the church? Yeah. Yeah, we went through some trials. When I stepped down from ministry, it was exceedingly hard. It was exceedingly difficult. And don't you think the thought came to my mind, it would be easier for me to leave? It would have been in a lot of ways. But easy, do not mistake easy with what is right. Two different things. And do not mistake your preference For God's preference. Is he your Lord and Savior? What does he want you to do? Where does he want you to serve? Now this isn't to to throw some emotional, psychological, spiritual ball and chain on you. I'm just saying, you walk out the door, know that God's leading you and this is why. And you know how you'll know that? You'll be able to look your brethren here in the face and tell them that. Honestly. If God's given you that conviction and God's given you that leading. You understand what I'm saying? What does God want us to do? This is what these guys had to ask in Babylon by the river Chabor. Keep being faithful. Keep living unto him as our Lord and Savior, and living in such a way, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? Where do you want me to serve? Individual Christians have to get that conviction. Young people, 
You know, you look around what other young people are doing. Stop looking at what other young people are doing and where other young people may be going to church. Where does God want you to be, young man, young woman? Be a man, be a woman of conviction before God. Not even ultimately, if you're of age, to make these decisions on your own, where your parents want you to be. What does God want you to be? Lay hold of that way of thinking and live unto Him. There is no doubt that the visions, thirdly, of God to Ezekiel and His repeated reference to Himself as Adonai, Jehovah, primarily communicated encouragement and hope to the believing, believing remnant that was in Babylon. Facing such dark spiritual and political circumstances, not knowing what the future would hold, but simply having to trust that God has this. He's got this. Everything's going to be okay. What happens? The supreme ruler of the universe shows up and reminds them of his position and glory and how far above human beings and human politics he is. Of his continued rule, of his continued active reign from heaven which includes earth, of his continued power to bring about all of his purposes, make no mistake, through Israel. They were reminded of the hymn of the sons of Korah penned years before in Psalm 46. Be still and know that I, I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. How is that possible, Lord? We don't even see your nation. We don't even see your people. And the temple is gone. Be still. And know that I am God. What's God teaching us? You don't need to know the answer. You need to know that he is God. You need to know that he will be exalted in the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. Well, how? Why? No, those aren't questions you get to ask. Those aren't answers you're going to be privy to. See, once you get a sense of who God is, just a small little taste of it, it makes whatever trial you're in bearable. You don't need the answer. You're waiting for a diagnosis. Worse yet, you're waiting for a diagnosis for one of your kids. Oh my goodness. You talk about potential of fret and worry. I've been there. And I've also prayed. And I've also witnessed that sense of well-being. That comes into your soul. And God giving you this. It's exactly how the scriptures describe it. Brethren, have you experienced it? I know you have. It's the peace that passes all understanding. You shouldn't be at peace, but you have a sense of well-being about this very difficult thing you're in. Relationally, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's one of your kids. Sometimes our kids, I mean, when I first started having kids, of course, before I had kids, I was single. I knew everything about child raising. Well, if that family did this, they'd be here. And if this family did the other thing, they'd be there. Not that, you know, you sit there. Hopefully you don't sit there. You know, you get the point, though. You think you know because you read the Word of God. It's so clear. Oh, really? There's not a chapter and verse for every circumstance you're going to run into as a parent. Those of you who are non-parents, Please understand that. You parents know that that's the case. Sometimes God simply wants you to get on your knees and leave your child with Him. And confess to God you don't know. You have no clue how to handle this. God, touch this kid. Come down from heaven. You are the true and living God. Come into this boy's soul and touch him. Minister to him. Give me peace. And you get a peace about it. You don't know the answers. You still don't know the answers. But you have a sense of well-being. Brother, that's what we need now in this political, cultural climate we're living in. 
Oh my goodness, your, your brain could go into a million directions of what's going to happen in this country. You're witnessing the fall of the United States of America. You're witnessing it. And we love this country. We love our freedoms. We don't want to see them go. We think of our kids. What, what kind of world is our kid going to live in? Should I even have more kids? You realize for the first time since 1979, there's been a huge decline in the birth of babies. It's more than just COVID in 2020. People don't want to bring kids into this world. For many different reasons. You can't worry about that. God is still upon his throne. Though God sent the Israelites away from Israel and would soon destroy the temple, the supreme ruler of the universe, here's the big idea. Doesn't need a temple to be with his people. He would still be with them, even in Babylon. God is always with his people. Jacob lays his head down upon a rock in the middle of nowhere, and it became the dwelling place of God, Bethel. No building, no grass, no trees, just a rock put his head down. Saw a ladder going from heaven to earth. This is the very dwelling place of God. Where? Let's find that place. Let's go find that place. You're not going to find real estate. You're not going to find a half an acre somewhere where that's where Jacob was and somehow God's going to mysteriously come to you. God is with his people wherever they are. We know this, don't we? He's with us, especially corporately when we're gathered. This is why I love the gates. Of Zion. I love the worship of God. He's with us more here when we're gathered than we're in our tents and dwelling. But He's with us there when scattered, and He's with us here gathered. Israel had to know that. Your well being does not depend upon you having a nation, your well being does not depend upon you having a temple. You are my temple, and I'm going to come fill you wherever you are. You're by the river Chabar, that's where I'm going to be. What a comfort! And He didn't just send emissaries. He came on his glorious chariot, driven and propelled by the spirit and the cherubim with wheels that were mesmerizing and amazing. And there he was in the fullness of his glory, immediately present with his people by the river Chabar. What an encouragement. He's not found in a church building. He's primarily and always with his people wherever they are. And this is an encouragement to us. Whether we have the United States of America in two decades or not, we will always have God with us. And Jesus promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's all we need, brethren. We don't need religious freedom. God is with his people in Burma and China right now, today. You've read of it. You've heard it. You've heard the testimony of God intervening miraculously in nations where they're trying to snuff them out, where they make it illegal to worship God as church is flourishing and growing, even faster than it is here. In dire circumstances, no guns, no ability to defend themselves, because in Myanmar, they outlawed private. You can't own a gun there. Why do you think the army's running roughshod over its citizens right now? They're the only ones with guns. With or without guns, God's people have God. That's all they need. That's all we need. Wherever we are, whether we have freedoms or not, God will be with us. Be still. Be still. And know that I am God. If God was the supreme King of kings and Lord of lords, Nebuchadnezzar, President Biden, Senator Schumer, Warren Hatch, doesn't matter what name you give it. No person is above God. Look what God did to Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) He turned him into an animal. (laughs) It's amazing. 
the most glorious king of the earth. God said, grow some feathers and go eat like the beasts of the field. Humbled him. And when you read of the account, it doesn't seem like it was too hard for God to do. Wow, you know, President Biden is 80, almost 80 years. God can do it. God can humble our leaders. He can humble them, pray for them. Pray that he would do it. Pray that God would have mercy upon the man, would have mercy upon our leaders, would save them, would humble them. Can you imagine what that next press conference would look like? Can you imagine the next speech or State of the Union if President Biden got saved? It would be way more interesting than watching Trump speak. Way more entertaining, way more exhilarating and amazing to hear him stand before the world, humble himself before the King of Kings. That'd be awesome. Don't forget it. He's our president, but the Lord is in authority over him. And he's still on his throne, ruling, reigning, working out his purposes for our good and his glory. What a comfort. You know, there was a darker time in human history when the Savior was about to be crucified, when he was bloodied, beaten. Perhaps his face was swollen. They asked him, are you the Christ? Are you the Lord of glory? He had to testify that he was because he is. And he says, yes, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory. Sends chills on my spine. Bloody, beaten, bruised, tired, exhausted Jesus about to be pinned to a cross. You will see me coming with the angels on the clouds of glory one day. And so we will. What did he say when he was raised? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to who? Our Savior. Doesn't that send chills up your spine? He is the one. Philippians 2. Every knee will bow. Every tongue. Doesn't it send chills up your spine? We'll confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's going to be an incredible day, brethren, when we get to witness that and be a part of it. God give us grace, though, to make sure, and I, I preach this to myself, that I live every day unto Him as Lord. Oh, give me grace to be more obedient. More dead to the world and the world more dead to me. Please, Lord, that every day you might clearly be my Lord of all people on earth. He should clearly be our Lord, shouldn't he, brethren? Amen. He should be our Lord, clearly. For what he's done for us. Please, more and more, Lord, be my Lord. Every thought captive to you, please. Forgive me, Lord. And have mercy upon me. And the one encouragement, well, we have many encouragements, but I've been thinking about, about this this week as we close. Oh, what an encouragement. The hymns, their poetry. Based on the scripture, beautiful, beautiful poetry. Let's see if I can find it here. There is a fountain filled with blood. And this one verse in here. Dear dying lamb. Thy precious blood. Shall never. Lose its power. Till all the ransomed. Church of God. Be saved. To sin no more. Believer, you've not out sinned the power of Christ's blood to forgive you. It'll never lose its power. Don't you feel that way sometimes? You can sin away grace. It'll never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. You know what? We need the fountain filled with blood. Just like the dying thief. 
The ransom church of God needs the power of the blood to be powerful till we sin no more. And bless God, it is. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you so much. You still sit upon a glorious throne and are still reigning and ruling in heaven and on earth. Oh, make us to feel it, Lord. Give us that peace that passes all understanding in the midst of so much that's unknown and so much that discourages us. So much, Lord, that breaks our heart as we see our countrymen running headlong to hell. Oh, we pray that in wrath, just wrath, you would remember mercy. Do not give us up, Lord. Do not continue to give us up. We pray that the gospel would be joined with the Spirit of God to bring revival yet again to this land. A humbling of our president, of our leaders. Conservative, liberal, doesn't matter. We pray they would recognize their subjection, and their accountability to you. And you would save them and change them to be rulers who rule in the fear of God and not the fear of not being reelected in the faces of men. And Lord, help us that it would be evident you are our Lord. You are our Savior, but make it evident in our lives that you are our Lord as well. Take every thought and make it captive. Forgive us our sins. We thank you, Lord, that the blood of Christ will never lose its power till that day, that glorious day, when we will sin no more. What an experience it will be to not have to ask forgiveness for our sins, having seen him and having become like him. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.